we proceed with the review of our studies as to what constitutes moral action and how we are to determine moral character before concluding the consideration of the moral attributes of God under the question, what do we know about the faithfulness of God from the Bible? For moral action and establishment of moral character, there must be the possession of personal characteristics, or there must be an ability of intellect to perceive and comprehend, an ability of emotion or appreciation of the valuable, and an ability of free will to determine what actions shall be taken. The Bible abundantly reveals that God possesses these qualities of personality. Then, since personal action is not necessary action, there must be a perception of what course of action is right and proper in the situations calling forth that action. There must be an understanding of the right before obligation can exist to choose the right. Again, the Bible abundantly reveals the perfect comprehension of truth possessed by the Godhead. God is light, we are told, or moral light, and in Him is no darkness at all. As we proceed in our consideration of moral action, we must understand more of its nature so we can evaluate moral character. First, moral action must be of a positive and definite sort, an action of will. Moral character must be determined by the free action of the subject, otherwise it is not moral character. It cannot be some static state back of the will causing it to act as it does. It must be an act of the will itself. Then secondly, the will, when it does act, must act as a unit. It cannot partly act and partly not act at the same time. It may change from moment to moment to be sure, but while it is acting in a certain direction, it is indivisible. There is always a distinct definiteness about actions of will. Thirdly, it is most important that we classify the kind of actions so that we may clearly distinguish which actions of will are primary actions and determine moral character and which actions of will are secondary or dependent upon other actions of will. We may therefore classify all actions of will into the following groups. There are ultimate or supreme choices which determine the overall destination of life. These form the reasons for all other choices that are made and therefore determine moral character. Actually, there are only two ultimate choices that can be made by a moral being. We can either choose to live intelligently or unintelligently. We can either choose to devote our lives to the highest good of all moral beings, or we can live for ourselves supremely and not regard the welfare of God, nor the welfare of our fellow men. Then there are subordinate choices, or choices that are made to further 
the abiding ultimate choices which prevail. It is impossible to have an ultimate choice or purpose and not take some action in our lives to further it. If we take no action, it must be that we have forsaken our ultimate choice. But having an ultimate choice, other choices will be made to further it. If our ultimate choice is to please ourselves supremely, which is the essence of sin, we will be led to choose those means of self-gratification which we think will bring us the most happiness. The means are chosen then because of the end. If we have denied ourselves in repentance and are living a life of love and devotion to God and man, then we will choose to do those things which we think will be a blessing to God and man. There are subordinate actions of will then that have their reason of choice in the ultimate purpose of life. Finally, there are executive volitions or detailed choices to carry out the means chosen to fulfill an ultimate choice or intention. These are related to subordinate choices, just as the subordinate choices are related to the ultimate choice. For example, in my purpose to serve God, I have chosen to sit at my desk and write rather than going out into the sunshine and taking it easy. The ultimate intention is to serve God. The means chosen at the moment is to sit here and write for the glory of God. But then weariness increases, and I am convinced that I could serve God more effectively by leaving my desk for a brief time and going out into the sunshine. I have then chosen another means temporarily that will better glorify God in the long run. I look about the room and see a door as the only way that I can get out of the room to get into the sunshine. I decide to get up from my chair and go out through the door into the sunshine. This actual going through the door is an executive volition to fulfill my decision to go out into the sun and is entirely dependent upon that decision. The decision to go out into the sun for a rest seemed the profitable thing to do for the glory of God. So the going had its reason in a purpose to glorify God by resting so that the writing might become more effective. Thus we see that our lives are not the haphazard activities that we sometimes think they are. Our actions can be analyzed as to their reasons. Therefore, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13:5, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. What are we doing now, we may ask? Why are we doing it? Is it for the glory of God? or for the supreme gratification of ourselves? By answering these questions, we can tell if we are in the Christian way or not. But fourthly, we are now prepared to ask, by what actions of will is our moral character to be estimated? 
what determines whether we are virtuous or sinful. Similarly, what determines our estimation of God's moral character. For want of a clear understanding in this important matter, much confusion and misunderstanding has arisen concerning God, concerning ourselves, and concerning our fellow men. The reason why things are done is the all-important thing to discern before we can understand or decide moral character. How can this be overemphasized? Concerning God, many have affirmed that the Bible is contradictory. It presents God in one place as the stern judge visiting destruction and cruelties upon men, they affirm, and in other places it presents a God of love and tenderness. Since the Old Testament contains more visitations of judgment than the New, many have rejected the Old Testament and the God that they say it reveals. Others say that the apostles wrote in a sterner way in the epistles of the New Testament than appears in the Gospels, and therefore they will only accept the teachings and ethics of Jesus. But they greatly err here, for Jesus received the Old Testament and said that he came to fulfill its principles, even to a minute letter. He manifested great anger and spoke with great sternness and made provision for the apostles to write what they did. These many problems arise simply because pains are not taken to understand the motives as to why a certain thing was said or done. Who could speak with greater harshness than the Lord Jesus when he said, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell, as recorded in Matthew 23, 33? Could this be the same Jesus who wept over the multitude and said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, as recorded in Matthew 11.28. The answer is to be found in the reasons for these actions. Would a God of love create a place of punishment, which the Bible calls hell, and send the great majority there to suffer throughout endless ages, some have boldly asked? If what they say about the nature of sin and the absence of guilt for sin be true, then the answer is plainly no. But if what the Bible says about sin and the awful guilt and responsibility of sinners be true, then we can see that a loving God is moved to these stern and dreadful measures because there is no other way out. It is God's love for the happiness of all moral beings that induces him to establish a righteous moral government. Man is immortal. If incorrigibles were allowed to enter heaven, they would mar the happiness of all. Love to the highest well-being of all demands, therefore, the separation of the just from the unjust. But further, God is loving to the unrepentant sinners in creating a hell where such can be separated 
from the direct consciousness of God to bring such into heaven into the very presence of God would show less love to them. They would hasten to get out of the place into a place of lesser moral light. And this is what God has provided. Even there they will torment themselves forever and ever, we read, and censure themselves for having rejected their many opportunities of grace. God, therefore, may be loving and absolutely virtuous in intention of will, as the Bible declares. Because of this benevolence, he is strictly impartial toward all. Some men receive his gracious overtures of mercy, others reject them and trample upon them. The great God of impartial love must treat them differently. Those who reject his grace are voluntary and persistent. They are subjects of guilt and not pathos. If God is going to remain in this state of impartial love, therefore, he must bring about a separation. Those who in great penitence enjoy his presence, he must make provision for them to be there. This is the heaven that Jesus went to prepare. Those who are uncomfortable in his presence and would prefer not to be tormented by an atmosphere of holiness, God has accordingly assigned them to a place which has been prepared for Satan and his fallen spirits of kindred minds. But we must continue. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy kind invitations of grace. We thank Thee for Thy impartial love. And now we pray that many may respond to Thy grace by repenting of all sin and through faith in the Lord Jesus for their sins. Find forgiveness and restoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.